Well, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Caleb. Uh, I serve alongside Pete and Malk as one of the elders at Trinity Church. And it's my pleasure today to speak with you today about this message from Haggai. Now, as Pete, excuse me, as Malk mentioned, today we're continuing our series. We've had a couple sermons already uh, that Pete preached for us the past couple weeks. And Pete reminded us uh, about a couple things that the Lord promises to be with his people and he promises to grant peace to his people. Today's sermon is entitled, I Will Bless You. Before we dive into our text, let's consider where and when we are in history in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 10 to 19. Prior to this point, uh, the Jews were, in, uh, were a sovereign nation with a rich history of success, but they had repeatedly disobeyed God. They ignored his commands and warnings, so God punished them. Their, their kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians, and they were carried off into exile for 70 years. After this exile, they returned to Jerusalem to build God's temple, which is what God commanded them to do. They had built the altar and laid the foundation of the temple. It was a, it was a very historically significant time for the Jewish people as they started this work. This happened about 550 years before Jesus was born. As the Jews rebuilt the temple, they experienced significant opposition to their work, so much so that they stopped the work altogether. And over 15 years had passed since they'd laid the foundation of the temple, and their work was incomplete. God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to call God's people to repentance and to continue to build the temple. This is where we resume the story today. And alongside these verses, you can also read other stories in the books of Ezra and Zechariah. Now, I'll summarize today's message with this. God blesses authentic repentance. God blesses authentic repentance. Now, there are three things that I'd like us to consider today, uh, broken down from the verses that we've already read, and those three things are this. The first is our desperate state. The second is God's gracious warning. The third is our future blessing. So let's consider first, then, our desperate state. Let's go back and read verses 11 to 14. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now, as we read any passage of scripture in the Bible, it's important to understand what various words mean. The word consecrated simply means, simply means set, uh, literally set apart. It means holy, that is distinct from others. This is how the Bible describes who God is. The unchanging nature of God, his holiness, 
Angels call out to one another in the presence of God, declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, in verse 13, we read about a defiled person. Defiled simply means unclean. That is the opposite to holy, not set apart, not like God. Here, then, God displays a picture of two things. We have what is defiled and what is holy. Now, before we examine the passage, let's, let's pause for a moment to consider the rules and regulations in the Old Testament. We can broadly categorize these into three areas. The moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. Now, the Bible doesn't call them by these names, but they're a helpful way of categorizing them for our understanding. Firstly, the moral law. This is the basis of all morality, right from wrong. Consider the Ten Commandments. God instructed his people how to relate to him and to other people. Back then, it was right to worship the God of the Bible alone, and it is still right today. Back then, it was wrong to commit murder, and it is still wrong today. Now, the civil law, this is what God gave Israel's government to administer justice. Just as we have laws today that our government um, is, is there to uphold and administer justice, so God gave Israel laws to uphold justice as a nation. Then there's the ceremonial law. These are the dietary restrictions, circumcision rituals, sacrificial system, and so forth, which is what these first few verses cover. Now, there is, there is some confusion sometimes about what commands we should obey today as Christians. Today is not meant to be a complete analysis in the Old Testament law and its application today, but the New Testament helps us to understand what the Old Testament means for us today. It clarifies that the previous laws regarding circumcision, festivals, sacrificial system, and dietary restrictions were a shadow of the things that were to come that Jesus fulfilled. There are several passages that we could read to help us understand the Old Testament regulations. Acts chapter 10 to 11, Galatians 5, Ephesians 2, Hebrews 10. But let's read just two verses in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. While many of the Old Testament regulations are not practiced today as Christians, God has given us the whole Bible, all 66 books for our benefit. We can still profit from understanding the Old Testament law. Jesus told many parables to communicate spiritual truths, and the stories we find in the Old Testament are actual historical events, and they also can serve us by communicating spiritual truths. Now let's go back to verses 11 to 14. Notice what God told Haggai to do. He said, ask the priest what the law says. It's interesting. God tells his people, look at my book. The Jews had God's written word down, and more than that, they knew what it said. 
It is so important for us to know God's word. We may have debates and discussions with others, but if we simply voice our opinions and feelings, how will that help us know Jesus more? As Christians, we do not create our own ideas, no. We consult God's word, the Bible. What a blessing it is to have God's word so available to us. The Bible contains all that we need for life and godliness. Next time you're discussing something about life or or Christianity, don't simply talk about what you think, your opinions. Talk about what the Bible has to say about it. The unfortunate reality is that we all know the Bible much less than we really should. As we process our present circumstances, it's imperative that we consult the Bible. The Bible is the objective and authoritative reality through which we understand life. Let's read it, obey it, and share it with others. In verses 12 to 13, we see a contrast between what is holy and what is defiled. These verses demonstrate that nothing is made holy simply by touching something else that is holy. In contrast, something can become defiled by touching something else that is defiled. Think about our present circumstances. If you have the coronavirus, you can pass it to someone very easily, simply by touching them. Now, if you're immune to the coronavirus, you cannot pass your immunity to someone else simply by touching them. It's the same helpful picture we see here. So let's try to understand this imagery God is displaying. This part of the ceremonial law represents a spiritual reality for us. Think about the context. God's people have returned from exile... They built the altar altar for sacrifices and laid the temple's foundation. They were making sacrifices just as God commanded. They They understood the law correctly and obeyed the sacrificial rules. But God said that their actions and offerings were still defiled. Now, if they obeyed the ceremonial law, why were they still defiled? There are many ways to spoil and defile our worship. Let's consider just three. The first defiled way of worship is this. My good outweighs my sin. My good outweighs my sin. This is a common belief. It goes like this. If I simply do enough good, I can replace the bad things that I've done. God will weigh my bad deeds against my good deeds. And if the good outweighs the bad, then I'm in God's favor. Many believe this lie, but it's so flimsy. If I am arrested because I murdered someone, my good deeds do not make me innocent of murder. I cannot defend myself by saying, well, look at all the good things that I've done. I work hard at my job. I love my family. I pay my taxes. I even give money to the poor. These actions will not make me innocent. This person is guilty. Imagine if the news reported a judge that pardoned a murderer because that murderer donates to charity. God is a perfect judge. Sin never goes unpunished. We can never do enough good to cover up and replace even just one mistake. As Christians, we know this, right? We understand this from what the Bible says. We cannot outweigh our bad with our good. 
But we behave like this sometimes, don't we? How do you respond when you realize that you sinned, that you messed up? Perhaps your response goes something like this. I really messed up this time. I'm just going to pray harder. I'll make sure that I read my Bible at least 30 minutes today. I might even volunteer for something at church. When we sin, the only right response is to confess our sin to the Lord and leave our sin behind. Only God can purify our hearts. Doing good things does not cover up our sin. We cannot make up for our sin with even the good things that Scripture tells us to do. The second defiled worship is this. My sin increases God's grace. My sin increases God's grace. Everyone is guilty of sin. When God forgives us of our sin, he gives us his grace. Grace is simply undeserved favor with God. If a thief is caught breaking into my home who stole my laptop, it is grace to the thief that I give him a brand new laptop. It is true that the more sin that is in our lives, the more grace is needed to forgive our sins. But we should never deliberately sin and excuse it simply by saying God is gracious and that we're going to show more of God's grace by sinning. As Christians, we are dead to sin. So we cannot live in sin any longer. No one should justify their sin by saying it will display more of God's grace. Friend, if you're trying to do evil so that good will result, your worship is defiled. The third defiled worship is similar to the second, and it's this. My sin is okay because of God's grace. My sin is okay because of God's grace. Now this attitude assumes that because God is gracious, there is no need to stop sinning. This person embraces their sin with no desire or even an effort to change. He carries on enjoying sin because to him, God's forgiveness is simply a license to do whatever he wants. There is no urgency to put sinful lifestyles to death. And you might even hear this person say something like this. Well, I, I prayed once that, that God would forgive me, so that's all I really need to do, right? The posture of this person's heart does not understand God's grace and therefore does not have God's grace. If any of these attitudes summarize you, then the Bible says that your worship is defiled. We should not think that God's grace is a genie's lamp that we rub when we fancy. God demands that we live, leave sin behind. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are under God's care, under his grace. Sin, it's a barrier between us and God. When we talk about sin, what we're saying is, is any disobedience to what God's word says. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, stealing, lying, worshiping any other God except the God of the Bible, anger, slander, gossip, and more. In Haggai, some of God's people focused on their rituals but neglected full obedience. God told them to build the temple, but they stopped building for over 15 years. Then God rebuked them through Haggai, and they started building again. And they even stepped out in faith. Yet even as they built the temple, some were tempted to think that 
By simply building the temple, they would be made holy, accepted by God. That is not how holiness works. Not then and not now. You can attend church regularly, work honestly, give time generously, pray faithfully, and affirm doctrines correctly. But these will not make you holy. They will not give you God's acceptance. This passage, what it shows us is that it's easier, much easier to be defiled than it is to be holy. Such is our disposition. Let's think about what it means to be defiled, unclean, unholy. We are defiled because of our sin. It is in our very nature as humans. There is no moral neutrality here. Contrary to holiness, our defilement is inherited. Psalm 51 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There is no way we can avoid this disposition. We're born on the wrong side of good versus evil. Every good thing we fail to do and every evil thing that we do deserves God's righteous judgment on us. If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, then you are defiled, helpless, and condemned before the judge of the world. Even ordinary things that are not inherently bad, like food, careers, holidays, and houses, they are defiled for you. You cannot enjoy these things rightly because giving God glory in your unbelieving state is impossible. You do not know God and therefore cannot praise him rightly for these gifts. Inevitably, these gifts become idols and replace the only true God. Thus, you defile them. More than this, the, the unbeliever may partake in good things like prayer, church, communion, baptism, and other things alike. But the unbeliever defiles these things also. God rejects the non-Christian's worship. Listen to these words about taking communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of, our, of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. It's a clear warning. Examine yourself. Don't simply practice religion externally. Do you follow Jesus? If you don't, then do not defile yourself further by taking communion. It is of no value. You drink condemnation on yourself. If you do this, it is of no value. Now, not all unbelievers completely disregard God. Often they simply worship God but on their terms. Remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4? They both brought sacrifices, yet God rejected Cain and accepted Abel. Cain wanted God's blessing on his own terms. Thus he disobeyed God. So do many unbelievers today. They practice a form of their own external religion, seeking God's blessing, but denying control over their life. They want to be in the kingdom, but they reject the king. Friend, it does not matter what you do if Jesus is not your king. 
In fact, you may practice your religion more faithfully than most Christians. But if your heart is defiled, everything you do is defiled. When life ends for you, it only gets worse. Eternal suffering awaits those who reject Jesus as king. This is everyone's desperate state. Non-Christians worship is always defiled, but even Christians worship can be defiled too. After all, Haggai is speaking to people who genuinely repented of their sin and sought to please God. We observe in a, in a parallel passage, it's, it's sort of happening around the same time, in the book of Zechariah chapter 1, that just one month before, this, before these verses, God spoke through Zechariah and confronted the people on their sin. And God's people said this in Zechariah. The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. Many of the people in Haggai repented of their sin and obeyed God. So who is the audience then for today's passage? Christians? Non-Christians? I believe it's both. God is gracious, merciful, and patient. He offers peace to everyone who will repent of their sin by trusting in Jesus to forgive them. And he is warning us in Haggai of our imminent danger. More than famine, economic hardship, and violent opposition, God is warning us that judgment looms. This leads us to our second point today, which is God's gracious warning. In verses 15 to 17, God's gracious warning. So let me read for us verses 15 to 17. God says, Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. My daughter Eden is 16 months old. She is a bundle of energy. She has a very funny sense of humor. She amazes me everything. She amazes me every day with the new things that she learns. By the way, if any of you want roly-poly lessons, uh, that's a new trick. She's happy to arrange a Zoom call to show you how it's done. I'll send the, the invoice later. Now, being 16 months old, her behavior reminds me about my behavior towards my Heavenly Father. When she knows that she shouldn't do something, she sometimes, maybe often, does it anyway. Even when I tell her no or don't touch. As a father, well, what do I do? I love her. I want what's best for her. Well, I might speak sternly to her, maybe move her from the situation, smack her hand. Now, now why do I discipline Eden? It is not because the rules are meaningless and thoughtless. No, the rules are to help her avoid danger, to protect her. My, no, when she's out back, I don't want her to climb the slippery 
wet metal steps. Why? Because she'll likely fall and injure herself. Now, I am a sinful father, but our Heavenly Father is perfect in every way. His wisdom is flawless. He knows precisely what we should do. In verses 15 to 17, God tells his people, remember what happened before the foundation of the temple. He warns them not to repeat history. Why were the Jews in exile in the first place? They disobeyed God. When the Jews returned from exile, what happened? They disobeyed again. And God did what he said he would do. He disciplined them. All throughout Scripture, time and time again, God warns us, Obey me and you will be blessed. Reject me and you will be cursed. You know, sometimes the consequences to our sin are swift. Sometimes they're delayed. But we can be certain that our sin has consequences. God wants to spare us of these consequences. He wants good things for us. But God is not some crooked judge that can be bought or fooled. He justly punishes sin. In this passage, we observe God's judgment on their agriculture and economy. They did not reap the harvest that they sought. This physical picture represents for us a spiritual reality God's warnings are painful but good for our correction. How do you respond to God's correction? I don't know where you might be ignoring God's commands today. Perhaps you're lying to someone. It's been happening for weeks, maybe months. Friend, your your lies will be discovered. There are consequences. God knows your heart. Maybe you're harboring bitterness towards a friend or family member. This person wronged you and you think, well, that's their problem. If they can't see that I'm angry, then there's nothing I can do. Friend, God sees your heart. Perhaps you're ignoring God's commands about alcohol and how drunkenness is a sin. It's kind of optional for you. Maybe none of your Christian friends know about it, but God does. He knows your heart. How quick we are to return to sin. This should not be. When we obey God, we reap his blessing. When we reject God, we reap chaos, death, and destruction. We experience the consequences of our sin, and God is warning us. He is showing us that this is not how we should live. And if we continue, it will only get worse. Think about all the mistakes that you've made, all all the bad stuff in your life. Remember the pain that we caused ourselves and others? How many tears have been shed because of our unkindness? How much misery have we pressed upon others with our sin? This destruction that we have caused warns us. It cries out that sin brings death. Next time we are tempted to sin, remember God's gracious warning. Let's shift to obedience to Jesus. When we choose to be honest, pure, patient, kind, and law-abiding citizens, we are blessed. 
Do we, do we believe that? It's easy to say, but it's often very hard to do. If we want to test what we really believe, I'd urge us to consider two questions. What do I want and what do I do? What do I want and what do I do? Our desires and our actions tell us what we believe. We might understand a lot about the Bible. We may affirm what it says, but our Bible knowledge alone is not sufficient to show us what we believe. When we become Christians, our desires change. Our actions change. What do you want and what do you do? The Bible is full of instructions for how we should love God and love the people around us. So stop to consider today, where am I disobeying God? Friends, when we obey God, we will face opposition. There is no avoiding it. It doesn't matter how nice you are, how many hours you volunteer, what things you have in common with others. The good news of Jesus is offensive. Any of us who wish to live godly lives will be persecuted. It's a promise in Scripture. Yet even as we are persecuted for our faith in Jesus, we are blessed. Don't be misled by your hardship as a Christian. We are blessed because we possess peace with the God of the universe, the judge of all creation. And this peace far outweighs any hardship and opposition we experience. This peace enables us to love one another and it binds us together in the body of Christ. That is the church. It's such a comfort to know that we're at peace with God and part of his family, adopted children. And this family must have no hatred towards one another. We are from all tribes, tongues, and nations bound together by the peace that Jesus provides. We have many different cultures and personalities, abilities, and weaknesses. And we must live in harmony with other Christians. All of God's family have sinned, but all of God's family is forgiven. Let's extend to one another grace as God extends his grace to us. How do we know that we are in Christ Christians should be quick to admit their sin. Christians should be quick and persistent to turn from their sin. If you're making no effort to change, and, and in fact you don't even want to change your sinful ways, then you should have no confidence that you're in Christ. Jesus compares people to trees. He says that you will know a tree by its fruit. What kind of fruit does your life show? The fruit of the Spirit that lives in every Christian is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So as we consider this Spirit, let's not delay our repentance where we are lacking. God's warning about sin is not empty. Yes, we may sin as Christians, but after we sin, we must repent. First John says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us 
our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As Christians, repentance must be a regular part of our lives. When was the last time you confessed your sin to the Lord? Perhaps you're like me. When you're confronted with your sin, you're slow to repent, reluctant to to acknowledge that it's your fault. Repentance through faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to experience God's blessing. When we confess our sin to God and ask him to purify us, by God's grace, he makes us holy. Our repentance brings peace with God. This brings us to our third and final point uh, for today's passage. And that third point is this. Our future blessing. Our future blessing. Let's read from the middle of verse 18 onwards. Give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. God's people had a problem. There was a shortage of food and drink. Even more than that, verse 19 seems to imply that there were no seeds in the barn to plant. The barns were empty. They had trees in the ground, but they were fruitless. No fruit, no seeds, no future harvest. But God promises to bless them. He controls the world. Now, don't misunderstand this. It's easy to take passages like this and say, see, if I just do what the Bible says, I'll earn more money, I'll have nicer holidays, I won't get sick, I'll wear nicer clothes. Such are the lies of false teachers today. These wicked people twist God's word for their own gain. They're hungry for power, pleasure, and money. But they have no part in God's blessing. They are dead and defiled. They do not honor God. And therefore, they will not receive his blessing. If someone tells you that becoming a Christian will make you healthy and rich in this world, they're lying. This is not what Jesus taught. Jesus said that if the world hates Christians, remember that the world hated him first. They crucified him. Jesus was persecuted, and so Christians will also be persecuted. When we become Christians, we are promised suffering, not material prosperity. Just as the God, just as God used the Old Testament law of touching defiled and holy things to communicate a spiritual reality, so we should also understand God's blessing in this way for our lives today. For Christians, there will be significant material and physical blessings, healthy bodies, imperishable riches, beautiful clothes, and delicious food that far exceeds your greatest experience here on earth. But these are not promised to you today. We might experience these blessings on earth. After all, if you obey Jesus, if you want to please him, then you will be more responsible with your choices, better stewards of your money, and good citizens of our country. This Christian behavior, it it may bless you physically 
and materially, but it's not guaranteed, nor should it be our ultimate goal. Even when we get to heaven and experience these blessings in fullness, they are not comparable to the greatest blessing of all, knowing Jesus Christ. The blessing of perfect harmony with the King of kings, the Lord of all creation, enjoying Him face to face in body and spirit. You can experience the blessing of knowing Jesus today. Let this encourage our hearts. Remember, our faith and obedience to Jesus is richly rewarded, but we will experience suffering in this life. Even so, we are still richly blessed because we are children of the living God. No suffering, no matter how great, can change that. If you're not a Christian, thank you for joining us. We're delighted that you're listening today. If you want to learn what it means to, to follow Jesus, please continue to tune in to our Sunday services. We have small group Bible studies starting next month that we'd, we'd love you to join. We, we want you to, to, to learn about what it means to follow Jesus. You can go to our website, trinitymanchester.org, and, and email us. Please know you are very welcome amongst us. But in love, we must warn you that becoming a Christian is hard. It's not the easy path, but Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Everyone dies, and everyone will give an account of their life to the supreme judge. If you don't know Jesus, then, then you are defiled and need to be made pure. If you decide to follow Jesus, you too can experience the blessing of peace with God right now. There is no need to wait and though it cost much, the blessing of peace with God, a relationship with Him, it is worth it. Jesus died for our sins, and He rose from the dead. He now reigns in heaven, and He will return one day. Will you follow Jesus? If you're a Christian, let's be clear about the gospel to others. Highlight all of what it means to follow Jesus, not just the exciting parts. Don't be overly worried about the timing or the technique. Let's just do it. Let's step out in confidence. God is with us. Let's love the non-Christians in our life. Being a Christian, it costs us so much, and it may even cost our life one day. But what is our life? It is a mist that is here today and gone tomorrow. Eternity, life after death, that's forever. As Christians, let's remember the unshakable hope that we have in Jesus. Remember his sacrifice on our behalf. Let this hope be our rock-solid confidence as we live like Jesus in this world. Let's take sin seriously and confess it and don't delay. Let's not have any of these defiled attitudes that we talked about today. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with something and you've not been completely honest with it to other Christians about your sin. Talk to us. We're here for you. 
We are a family. God's power, God's grace that raised Jesus from the dead, that brings salvation to all of us, this is the grace, the power that defeats sin. God blesses authentic repentance. What a joy, comfort, and confidence this word is for us today. Let's pray. Father, you are so patient, so kind, so good, so merciful and gracious, Lord. And all throughout scripture, yes, all throughout humanity and the history of the world, Lord, you have longed for people to turn to you, to reject sin and embrace you as their king. And Lord, you have provided the way of salvation, Jesus' death and resurrection. Father, you have provided a way for everyone to be at peace with you. But yet, Father, so often we reject this, and many, sadly, around the world reject this to their eternal doom. Father, I pray and I plead with you, Lord, to work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to stand firm in the hope that is the gospel for our lives. And Lord, show us the sin that is in us. Help us to help one another, to love one another, to confess our sin to you and to to share our burdens with one another and remember the grace that is at work uh, in us, the salvation that we possess. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to overcome sin and remind us, Lord, that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are under grace. And Lord, help us in this to go boldly out to proclaim it to the people around us. And we pray that you would transform the north of Manchester and, yes, this world, Lord, for those who are lost and perishing. We pray, Lord, that your grace would be extended to them, that they would repent and they would believe on Jesus. In your name, amen.